Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. October 30, on this date in history, in the year 1938, the War of the Worlds broadcast. Orson Welles's realistic radio dramatization of a Martian invasion of Earth is broadcast on the radio on October 30, 1938. Welles was only 23 years old when his Mercury Theater Company decided to update H.G. Welles's 19th century science fiction novel, The War of the Worlds, for national radio. Despite his age, Welles had been in radio for several years, most notably as the voice of The Shadow in the hit mystery program of the same name. War of the Worlds was not planned as a radio hoax, though Wells had little idea of how legendary it would eventually become. The show began on Sunday, October 30 at 8 o'clock p.m. A voice announced the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Sunday evening in 1938 was prime time in the golden age of radio, and millions of Americans had their radios turned on. But most of these Americans were listening to ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his dummy Charlie McCarthy on NBC and only turned to CBS at 8.12 p.m. after the comedy sketch ended and a little-known singer went on. By then, the story of the Martian invasion was well underway. Wells introduced his radio play, with a spoken introduction followed by an announcer reading a weather report. Then, seemingly abandoning the storyline, the announcer took listeners to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you would be entertained by the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. Putrid dance music played for some time, and then the scare began. An announcer broke in to report that Professor Farrell of the Mount Jenning Observatory had detected explosions on the planet Mars. Then, The dance music came on, followed by another interruption in which listeners were informed that a large meteor had crashed into a farmer's field in Grover's Mills, New Jersey. Soon, an announcer was at the crash site, describing a Martian emerging from a large metallic cylinder. Good heavens, he declared. Something's wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now here's another and another and another one. They look like tentacles to me. I can see the thing's body now. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather. But that face, it, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips and seem to quiver and pulsate. The Martians mounted walking war machines and fired heat ray weapons into the puny humans gathered around the crash site. They annihilated a force of 7,000 National Guardsmen, and after being attacked by artillery and bombers, the Martians released a poisonous gas into the air. Soon, Martian cylinders landed in Chicago and St. Louis. The radio play was extremely realistic, with Wells employing sophisticated sound effects and his actors doing an excellent job at portraying terrified announcers and other characters. 
An announcer reported that widespread panic had broken out in the vicinity of the landing sites with thousands desperately trying to flee. The Federal Communications Commission investigated the unorthodox program but found no law was broken. Networks did agree to be more cautious in their programming in the future. The broadcast helped Orson Welles land a contract with a Hollywood studio, and in 1941 he directed, wrote, produced, and starred in Citizen Kane, a movie that many have called the greatest American film ever made. October 31. On this date in history, in the year 1926, celebrated magician Harry Houdini dies. Harry Houdini, the most celebrated magician and escape artist of the 20th century, dies of peritonitis in a Detroit hospital. Twelve days before, Houdini had been talking to a group of students after a lecture in Montreal when he commented on the strength of his stomach muscles and their ability to withstand hard blows. Suddenly, one of the students punched Houdini twice in the stomach. The magician hadn't time to prepare and the blows ruptured his appendix. He fell ill on the train to Detroit and, after performing one last time, was hospitalized. Doctors operated on him, but to no avail. The burst appendix poisoned his system, and October 31, he died. Houdini was born Eric Weiss in Budapest in 1874, the son of a rabbi. At a young age, he immigrated with his family to Appleton, Wisconsin, and soon demonstrated a natural aerobatic ability and an extraordinary skill at picking locks. When he was nine, he joined a traveling circus and toured the country as a contortionist and trapeze performer. He soon was specializing in escape acts and gained fame for his reported ability to escape from any manacle. He went on his first international tour in 1900 and performed all over Europe to great acclaim. In executing his escapes, he relied on strength, dexterity, and concentration, not trickery, and was a great showman. In 1908, Houdini began performing more dangerous and dramatic escapes. In a favorite act, he was bound and then locked in an iron-bound chest that was dropped into a water tank or thrown off a boat. In another, he was heavily bound and then suspended upside down in a glass-walled water tank. Other acts featured Houdini being hung from a skyscraper in a straitjacket or bound and buried without a coffin under six feet of dirt. In his later years, Houdini campaigned against mediums, mind readers, fakers, and others who claimed supernatural talents but depended on tricks. At the same time, he was deeply interested in spiritualism and made a pact with his wife and friends that the first to die was to try and communicate with the world of reality from the spirit world. Several of these friends died, but Houdini never received a sign from them. Then, on Halloween in 1926, Houdini himself passed at the age of 52. His wife waited for a communique from the spirit world, but it never came. She declared the experiment a failure shortly before her death in 1943. November 1. On this date in history, in the year 1800, John Adams moves into the White House. President John Adams, in the last year of his only term as president, 
moved into the newly constructed President's House, the original name for what is known today as the White House. Adams had been living in temporary digs in Tunnicliffe's City Hotel near the half-finished Capitol building since June 1800, when the federal government was moved from Philadelphia to the new capital city of Washington, D.C. In his biography of Adams, historian David McCullough recorded that when Adams first arrived in Washington, he wrote to his wife Abigail at their home in Quincy, Massachusetts, that he was pleased with the new site for the federal government and had explored the soon-to-be president's house with satisfaction. Although workmen had rushed to finish plastering and painting walls before Adams returned to D.C. from a visit to Quincy in late October, construction remained unfinished when Adams rolled up in his carriage on November 1. However, the Adams's furniture from their Philadelphia home was in place and a portrait of George Washington was already hanging in one room. The next day, Adams sent a note to Abigail, who would arrive in Washington later that month, saying that he hoped none but honest and wise men shall ever rule under this roof. Although Adams was initially enthusiastic about the presidential mansion, he and Abigail soon found it to be cold and damp during the winter. Abigail, in a letter to a friend, wrote that the building was tolerable only so long as fires were lit in every room. She also noted that she had to hang their washing in an empty audience room, currently the East Room. John and Abigail Adams lived in what she called the Great Castle for only five months. Shortly after they moved in, Thomas Jefferson defeated Adams in his bid for re-election. Abigail was happy to leave Washington and departed in February 1801 for Quincy. As Jefferson was being sworn in on March 4, 1801, John Adams was already on his way back to Massachusetts, where he and Abigail lived out the rest of their days at their family farm. November 2. On this date in history, in the year 1986, Greta Waits wins her eighth New York City Marathon. Norwegian distance runner Greta Waits wins her eighth New York City Marathon. She finished the 26-mile, 385-yard course in two hours, 28 minutes, and six seconds, more than a mile ahead of the second and third place women in the race. Waits had won her first marathon in New York in 1978, and she won the New York City Marathon again in 79, 80, 82, 83, 84, and 85. In 1988, she won it for the ninth time, something no runner has ever done in any marathon. Waits grew up in Oslo, Norway. She won national and international titles in shorter distances, 400 meters, 800 meters, 1500 meters, 3000 meters, and the metric mile. But she had never run a marathon before in 1978, when Fred LeBeau, the director of the New York race, called her and invited her to participate. He never thought I would complete the race, she remembered later, but he needed a rabbit, someone who would go out strong and set the pace for the elite women. Waits agreed and set out for New York with her husband, Jack. The furthest she ever run was 12 miles. The night before the race, eager to celebrate their second honeymoon in Manhattan, the two went out to a swanky restaurant where they ate shrimp cocktail, filet mignon, and ice cream, and plenty of red wine. The next morning, bright and early, 
the 25-year-old Waits started the marathon at the front of the pack and stayed there. But as the race dragged on, she started to wonder what she'd gotten herself into. I continued running strong, she remembered. But having no idea what mile I was on or where this place called Central Park was, I began to get annoyed and frustrated. Every time I saw a patch of trees, I thought, oh, this must be Central Park, but no. To keep motivated, I started swearing at my husband for getting me into this mess in the first place. When she finished the race, she hurled her shoes at Jack's head, but she won, and she'd set a new world record, two minutes faster than the old one, of two hours, 32 minutes, and 30 seconds. The next year, Waits quit her teaching job and started running full-time. She won the silver medal at the 1984 Olympics. Norway, like the United States, had boycotted the 1980 Games in Moscow. Along with her nine New York City Marathon titles, Waits set 10 world records in the 3,000 meters, 8,000 meters, 10,000 meters, 15,000 meters, and 10 miles, along with the marathon. Waits retired from competitive running in 1990. She became a health and fitness expert and running coach in Oslo. In 1992, she accompanied Fred LeBeau as he ran his own marathon for the first time while he was in remission from brain cancer. In 2005, Waits was diagnosed with cancer herself. Still, I'm going to be in the marathon again, she told reporters. And you know, I've won most of the races in my life. I expect to win this one, too. She died in 2011 at age 57. November 3. On this date in history, in the year 1948, a newspaper mistakenly declares Dewey defeats Truman. The Chicago Tribune jumps the gun and mistakenly declares New York Governor Thomas Dewey the winner of the previous day's presidential race against incumbent Harry S. Truman in a front-page headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. Many of America's major newspapers had predicted a Dewey victory early on in the campaign. A New York Times article editorialized that if Truman is nominated, he will be forced to wage the loneliest campaign in recent history. Perhaps not surprisingly, then, Truman chose not to use the press as a vehicle for getting his message across. Instead, in July 1948, he embarked on an ambitious 22,000-mile whistle-stop railroad and automobile campaign tour. At every destination, Truman asked crowds to help him keep his job as president. His eventual success in the election of 1948 has been largely attributed to his direct interaction with the public and his appeal to the common voters as the political underdog. At the end of one of his campaign speeches, voices in the crowd could be heard yelling, Give him hell, Harry! It didn't take long for the phrase to catch on and become Truman's unofficial campaign slogan. In a now-famous photograph snapped in the early morning hours after the election, a beaming and bemused Truman is shown holding aloft the Chicago Tribune issue that had wrongly predicted his political downfall. Truman defeated Dewey by 114 electoral votes. November 4. On this date in history, in the year 1922, the entrance to King Tut's tomb is discovered. 
British archaeologist Howard Carter and his workmen discover a step leading to the tomb of King Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt on November 4, 1922. When Carter first arrived in Egypt in 1891, most of the ancient Egyptian tombs had been discovered, though the little-known King Tutankhamun, who had died when he was 18, was still unaccounted for. After World War I, Carter began an intensive search for King Tut's tomb, finally finding steps to the burial room hidden in the debris near the entrance of the nearby tomb of King Ramses VI in the Valley of Kings. On November 26, 1922, Carter and fellow archaeologist Lord Carnivon entered the interior chambers of the tomb, finding them miraculously intact. Thus began a monumental excavation process in which Carter carefully explored the four-room tomb over several years, uncovering an incredible collection of several thousand objects. The most splendid architectural find was a stone sarcophagus containing three coffins nested within each other. Inside the final coffin, which was made out of solid gold, was the mummy of the boy king Tutankhamun, preserved for more than 3,000 years. Most of these treasures are now housed in the Cairo Museum. November 5. On this date in history, in the year 1605, King James learns of gunpowder plot. Early in the morning, King James I of England learns that a plot to explode the Parliament building had been foiled hours before he was scheduled to sit with the rest of the British government in a general parliamentary session. At about midnight on the night of November 4, Sir Thomas Conive, a Justice of the Peace, found Guy Fawkes lurking in a cellar under the Parliament building and ordered the premises searched. Some 20 barrels of gunpowder were found, and Fox was taken into custody. During a torture session on the rack, Fox revealed that he was a participant in an English Catholic conspiracy to annihilate England's Protestant government and replace it with Catholic leadership. What became known as the Gunpowder Plot was organized by Robert Catsby, an English Catholic whose father had been persecuted by Queen Elizabeth I for refusing to conform to the Church of England. Guy Fawkes had converted to Catholicism, and his religious zeal led him to fight in the Spanish army in the Netherlands. Catsby and the handful of other plotters rented a cellar that extended under Parliament, and Fawkes planted the gunpowder there, hiding the barrels under coal and wood. As the November 5 meeting of Parliament approached, Catsby enlisted more English Catholics into the conspiracy, and one of these, Francis Tresham, warned his Catholic brother-in-law, Lord Montagle, not to attend the Parliament that day. Montagle alerted the government, and hours before the attack was to have taken place, Fox and the explosives were found. By torturing Fox, King James's government learned of the identities of his co-conspirators. During the next few weeks, English authorities killed or captured all of the plotters and put the survivors on trial, along with a few innocent English Catholics. Guy Fawkes himself was sentenced, along with the other surviving chief conspirators, to be hanged, drawn, and quartered in London. Moments before the start of the gruesome execution on January 31, 1606, he jumped from a ladder while climbing to the hanging platform, breaking his neck and dying instantly. 
1606, Parliament established November 5 as a day of public thanksgiving. Today, Guy Fawkes Day is celebrated across Great Britain every year on November 5 in remembrance of the gunpowder plot. As dusk falls, villagers and city dwellers across Britain light bonfires, set off fireworks, and burn effigies of Guy Fawkes, celebrating his failure to blow Parliament and James I to kingdom come. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for October 30 through November 5. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.